On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank you for joining us today for what will be a really informative conversation on predicting mortality in COPD using machine learning. Today, we are fortunate to have Drs. Hobbs and Paraga as our guests. We will be discussing Dr. Hobbs' article entitled, Machine Learning and Prediction of All-Cause Mortality in Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, and the accompanying editorial entitled, Machine Learning Predictions of COPD Mortality, Computational Hide-and-Seek. So uh, let's have our guests introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Hobbs? Hello, I'm Brian Hobbs. I'm a pulmonologist and a COPD researcher in the Channing Division of Network Medicine and the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And uh, I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Brian. Uh, Dr. Paragon? Thank you. Hi, uh, it's, I'm Grace Paraga. I'm a professor at Western University in London, Canada. Um, I'm an imaging scientist, and I uh, work in the Department of Medicine and in Biomedical Engineering at Western. Um, my lab develops new ways to extract information from medical images uh, for patients with asthma and COPD. Great. Absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. So why don't we go ahead and get started, and we'll get Grace to kick us off. So maybe you could tell us why is predicting COPD mortality so important, and uh, what role could machine learning play in this? Sure. Well, uh, as you know, I, I'm not a physician. I'm not a clinician or a pulmonologist. I'm an imaging scientist, but I'm also a human being, and I think everyone wants to know um, about the trajectory of their life, um, and people in particular with chronic diseases that have developed over long periods of time really want to understand the trajectory of their disease. And it's really difficult um, to know using current methods that we use in the clinic um, to know and, and differentiate those patients who are um, really facing imminent death and those that may have 10 or 20 years um, to live. Um, I think it's important for so many reasons. I think if you know, if you can predict a patient that's at risk of dying imminently, there may be interventions you can use. It allows physicians and the care team to prepare the patient and their family for next steps. And, um, I, I can give you some examples from our own lab where we have patients with the same kinds of clinical features, um, but there are hidden features about that patient that tell some physicians that this patient is at risk of dying in the next year or two, and that's really important information. And what role would machine learning play in helping you to predict mortality? Um, well, this is certainly a question that Dr. Hobbs can answer. I think um, what machine learning helps us do is it takes advantage of the computational power we have to take all the features and all the findings in a population um, and distill down from all those findings the important 
type of predictors of what's going to happen to a patient. Um, and, and that's how I see it. I see it as a tool. Machine learning is a tool. It's not a, uh, um, you know, it's not a slam dunk when you use machine learning or, or any other tool. It helps us take um, advantage of computational power to assess millions of features to find those important ones that uh, might help us understand um, those hidden features in patients that are helpful in predicting what's going to happen to them next. Gotcha. So Dr. Hobbs, uh, maybe you could go ahead and give us um, the motivation for your study um, and what role uh, you believe uh, machine learning could play in uh, understanding COPD mortality. Sure. So um, as Dr. Paraga said, uh, you know, the first motivation is really the patients. And, you know, COPD is such a heterogeneous set of disorders, really, that um, when you have a patient with COPD presenting to you in clinic, it, it's, it's really hard to give them an outlook as to say, what, it, what are their next five or ten years going to look like? Um, and there have been some traditional tools in machine, in, I'm, I'm sorry, in mortality, mortality prediction in COPD, like the well-known uh, Bode index, that have done pretty well. But uh, our motivation was basically from the COPD gene and eclipse studies, which have you know this wealth of imaging data and other available phenotypes, to, to kind of start from scratch and to say, okay, if, if we just use all available information that we have in these very well-done studies, um, including, you know, the almost eight years of mortality data they had, what could we do to build a new set of predictors of mortality um, in COPD? And we thought that the best kind of set of tools to do that was to look at machine learning tools instead of having to go through, you know, hundreds of variables and adding them one by one in stepwise regression methods to just say, what if we put everything together and let a machine learning tool select for us the things that uh, may be most important to predicting mortality in COPD? And in particular, you know, again, the, the focus on CT imaging features where there had been individual uh, imaging features like airway wall thickness and emphysema the pulmonary artery to aorta ratio and interstitial lung abnormalities, all of which had been independently associated with mortality, but um, they hadn't really all been evaluated together yet to say what, what you know, what, what is the relative contribution of each of these predictors to mortality, and um, does one of these predictors capture the information that another one has, and, and you know, when they're considered together may not be as important. So um, that was really the motivation, that, that we, there was a lot of information that had not been looked at yet for mortality altogether, um, even though a lot of things had been looked at independently. Um, but we knew that it was going to be a hard task. I mean, uh, Bode is not a new mortality prediction tool, and um, many, many, many studies have tried to uh, look at their models against Bode and have not often been better, superior to Bode in predicting uh, mortality. So what are the drawbacks of using Bode? Um, if you're planning to come up with a new prediction uh, model, uh, are there any drawbacks to using Bode that you'd hope that your model would supersede? I don't necessarily think that there are drawbacks to using Bode. Um, 
I, I, it's just, I don't know that Bode considers every facet of a patient presenting to, to clinic, and that's what we were trying to capture. You know, I think Bode probably still has relevance. Um, obviously, it's had a lot of staying power, um, and a lot of people, still, especially in the research community, still look to it as kind of a benchmark for mortality prediction in COPD. Um, I, 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 you know, for me, the primary limitations are that it, it doesn't consider as many aspects of COPD as people see clinically. Um, so it's, there's just this thought that maybe you can do a little better. Maybe you can consider more features in a patient and do a little better. When you're in clinic, what features would you think of that you think uh, Bo doesn't encompass? Well, I, I, I'll have to say, you know, first as a, as a disclaimer, that Bode um, did have a little bit different uh, mission in when they were developing the model. And, and they specifically didn't include age because they were trying to predict respiratory-specific mortality. Um, and by dropping age, they thought maybe they were actually not getting as much into cardiovascular mortality or cancer mortality. Um, however, I, I do think that those things are in, important. And, you know, for research purposes, it may be interesting to say, you know, what is your cause-specific mortality? You know, what are the things that are going to cause a respiratory death or a cardiovascular death or a cancer death? However, um, I think by, at a minimum by adding in age uh, and, and telling a patient, you know, what other aspects of your disease, what comorbidities, diabetes, you know, cardiovascular disease, what other things may contribute to an all-cause mortality. So we did have a little bit different uh, set of goals than Bode, and I, I do think age is an important factor to consider in, in predicting one's mortality from, from any cause um, as, as a starter. Definitely. So let's jump into what your study methods were and how they addressed any limitations of previous studies. And maybe you could just give us a little bit of information on um, some technical, you know, aspects of machine learning that you had to factor in into doing the study and what timeline uh, this took. Like, uh, I mean, you mentioned millions of data points. Uh, how long does it actually take to do this kind of study? So uh, your study methods, please. Oh, sure. So. Um the machine learning is a very, very broad term, um, and depending on who you talk to, some, some people would consider, uh, you know, regression, uh, traditional regression, and Cox regression, and also to be machine learning methods. Um, but uh, when we were initially using machine learning, we were thinking about um, types of tools that allowed you to look at uh, correlated data and nonlinear interactions between data, um, and we looked through several different tools. We evaluated several different things. We, we weren't set on using any specific machine learning method, but what we settled on was a kind of a combination of machine learning and um, a traditional Cox regression in order to have our, our final survival model. So we you know, being pulmonologists, we looked through the set of all features available in uh, COPD gene and Eclipse, and, and because we wanted to have a validation study, we had to select a set of variables that were available in both cohorts and that were available in enough individuals within each cohort that, that we were actually still evaluating uh, a large number of features but not um, having a lot of missingness in our data. 
So we, uh, we're down to about um, 30 features initially considered to put into the machine learning models. And then we were hoping the machine learning models would uh, help pair this, these 30 features down to a fewer number of features to, to give a more parsimonious um, model. So we use random survival forest, which is a spe special type of uh, machine learning tool, random forest, that is optimized for survival data and allowed random survival forest to tell us which are the most important features for mortality prediction. And it gives you a kind of ranked list of you know, what is most important. And then we evaluated those features to make sure that they were not too correlated and would uh, interfere with our Cox regression and then um, implemented them into a Cox survival model. The reason to do that was, well, one, because the it has less of a kind of black box, and we thought it might be more palatable to clinicians um, to actually be able to see uh, in a final model, you know, what are the coefficients associated with each of the features for prediction and be able to kind of build a, um, a calculator that would not be just a, a black box for clinicians to put in numbers and get something out. Um, but also, when we looked at both random survival forests and the, the Cox implementation with our selected features, um, Cox performed as well or better than random survival forest. forest. Um, and you can see those comparisons in our, in our supplement. So in terms of how to, uh, oh, oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say in terms of how, you know, how did these address limitations of previous studies? Um, I, I think it's, it's just in that we were considering um, a much larger set of variables. I think the, some of the limitations of earlier mortality prediction studies with the variable set initially considered was not as large. And, and these methods allowed us to consider a large set of variables but still settle down to the uh, most relevant or important features without losing a lot of information. Gotcha. So let's jump into your key findings. Uh, so what were you? primary findings, and uh, how did you interpret them? Brian? Yeah, so um, the, the primary findings were, I guess, kind of the punchline was that uh, we had, we, the machine learning mortality prediction model we developed um, was statistically superior to Bode in that its prediction uh, was greater for mortality over eight years. Um, However, it, it, it was, you know, admittedly incrementally so. Uh, I, I think that the important thing is that it was the first time, and, and there had been many different comparisons of different mortality prediction tools to Bode, that this had been shown uh, in a large COPD cohort and validated in another COPD cohort. So it was kind of robust, this finding of, you know, uh, of being as good and even statistically better than Bode in its mortality prediction. Um, that was the key finding. I think um, another key finding, which I'll let uh, Dr. Paraga talk about, as she mentioned in her editorial, um, is that uh, when looking at several different machine learning methods and even traditional um, regression, Cox regression, with, without the variable selection of machine learning, that uh, everything performed relatively similarly 
but this approach that we had of first variable selection with random forest and, and then an implementation to Cox led to the smallest set of variables with the best prediction uh, relative to the number of variables. And then that is to say that you could use another method and use all 30 variables we initially considered and have similar prediction that's still superior to Bode, but you know, to, to be able to get down to a smaller set of variables it was we thought uh, important. So which, uh, so before I turn to Grace, um, maybe Brian, you could just tell us what the final variables were in your uh, model that allowed you to predict mortality better than Bode. Sure, yeah, so I, I think um, one of the, the ones I mentioned earlier, I think age, because we were looking at all-cause mortality, age was one of the things that was much different from, from our model and Bode. But our final list, six-minute walk distance, and this is an order of um, variable importance coming out of random forest. Six-minute walk distance, um, your gold spirometry severity grade, SEV1% of predicted, age, uh, MMRC dyspnea score, the SEV1 to FBC ratio, the FEF2575, your resting sat um, on ambient air, number of um, pack years of cigarette smoking, the number of exacerbations uh, reported per year leading up to the study, um, body mass index, the number of severe exacerbations, you know, those requiring hospitalization, uh, PA to A ratio, which is the pulmonary artery to aorta ratio on CT scan, whether or not you have diabetes, um, a measure of airway wall thickness, uh, and uh, your forced vital capacity percent predicted, and the percent emphysema quantitatively obtained from your CT scan. That was the final set of variables. Um, and we do have um, all of those available for people to visualize on an online uh, calculator and the visualization tool so people can play with those as they read the manuscript and look at the relative contributions of each of those in a hypothetical patient. And those are all variables that uh, we do have access to, most of them uh, clinically. So Grace, let's turn to you. Um, what did you find, uh, when you read the paper, what were the key messages that you got from it and how did you interpret the findings? Well, I'm going to take a step back and, and, and remind the um, listeners that I'm a technology developer. I love technology tools. I love new software. I, every machine that comes out, I want to buy it. Um, I love new technology, and my lab develops new technology. Um, what I haven't seen in the literature um, until now has been an application of new computational methods with the um, pre-existing COPD gene and Eclipse um, databases. And I think th these databases that were funded by the, by the public sector, by the U.S. taxpayer, and by the private sector, these are real gold mines that need to be um, basically mined. There is an enormous amount of data in those databases, and um, Dr. Hoff and his team really have to be um, congratulated for going down this pathway. This is not an easy um, sell for pulmonologists, um, for clinicians, um, and machine learning in particular has a, a number of um, shortcomings. Um, what I was excited about um, was that the, they, they were able to generate a model 
it is similar to Bode um, and it also integrated something that Bode doesn't integrate, which are the pathological findings in the lungs that you see using CT scans. Quantitative CT scans were um, acquired in Eclipse and COPD gene, and that's a, that is like all the hidden pathological drivers of exacerbations of um, of FEV1 decline, of response to treatment, um, of onboard inflammation. So these features, these imaging measurements that were included in their model, and one is a, a ratio of the pulmonary artery to the aorta. Um, another one is the airway wall thickness. Um, and, and the other is gives you a sense of how much emphysema is, is in the lung. I think these are really important new um, additions to our understanding of what's happening to people as they decline um, inexorably with COPD. So that's what excited me. I've already, you know, given you my bias that I'm always interested in seeing the application of new technologies and new ideas to very large, expensive databases. Um, I, you know, I think this is just a first step, and this group is really positioned now to get to the next step, which is um, seeing this model maybe used in practice. They've uh, committed to putting this online and making it visually attractive. And um, let's see if um, this means that we can actually change trajectories in patients. Because if you know that you know there's something that you can change or treat or intervene with, um, it means that maybe we'll be starting to come up with things that can change or intervene with the so-called pulmonary artery to aorta ratio or wall area thickness or emphysema. Definitely, and I uh, definitely commend the team for um, the app on, uh, on online where the, you can just plug in the data and, and you get a prediction of uh, mortality. Um, as uh, Dr. Hobbs said, uh, there's a disclaimer that says you can't use it for individual patients, but it definitely allows you to see how it factors in. So, um, Grace, maybe you could, uh, when you read the paper, were there any limitations to uh, in the study that you felt uh, could have been addressed or that would need to be addressed in future studies. Um, there is no perfect uh, research study and we definitely want to learn from uh, previous studies. So what would you have uh, changed or what limitations would you uh, caution the readers about? Um, that's a really good question. I, I don't think I would have changed anything. I think that the, the track that the, this group was on was uh, something that needed to be done, and they did it in a very careful way. I think the uh, only limitation people need to continuously remind themselves about is that any model, including Bode, is based on a population. And the COPD gene and Eclipse populations are finite populations with a finite amount of disease from a finite place. So I think the generalizability of models um, has to always be kept in mind. I'll give you an example. Um, we have a cohort study uh, north of the 49th parallel in Canada called CanCold. Very similar uh, data was acquired at, uh, like COPD gene and Eclipse, but the data looked different. Um, and so models that would be run on CanCold may come up with different predictors. 
We have a very small cohort study here in London, Canada, of people who live in this region uh, with all the sort of environmental issues that occur in um, southwestern Ontario, and there are many of them. Um, and we happen to have a lot more emphysema uh, per FEV1% predicted here in this small region than then does uh, Eclipse, then does COPD gene. So I think that's the thing to always keep in mind is that the model reflects the data set it comes from. Remember, this was trained and tested using two very large databases, but these are uh, mostly folks from the U.S., or all, always all folks from the U.S., with all the um, different types of problems, uh, health problems that are inherent in the U.S. For example, one of the, one of the um, um, predictors was diabetes. It may well be that diabetes, type 2 diabetes is not a strong predictor in other populations. Um, so I think I'll leave it at that. I, I, would have, I really um, thought this was an important paper to come out, um, and I think they've addressed some of these um, bigger issues very clearly um, in the limitation section of their, of their discussion. Definitely. So, Brian, your response to Grace's comment? And Grace is, is, is very kind. I, I, um, I appreciate what she had to say. I mean, we, we, we have spent a long time. I mean, this project was four or five years in the making, just trying to be very careful and cautious and trying to respect um, the machine learning aspect of this as well as the clinical aspect of this. So, um, you know, I think Grace is right on with what she's saying the key limitations are. The key limitations are that in order to do this kind of this rote study of large databases, you do have to use um, studies like uh, COPD gene and Eclipse where the phenotypes are well curated, and that has to be a starting point. Um, but even within those two studies, they are quite different, um, and we show the differences in you know, severity is one of the differences, but not just that, but for people of a similar severity as COPD, their imaging features are quite different between um, COPD gene and Eclipse, whether that's actual differences in severity or differences in the way that uh, the CT protocol, the way that the images were captured, also can influence um, your results, and that would impact mortality prediction. So um, I, I do think I agree with um, Dr. Paraga that uh, generalizability uh, is, is a key limitation, and this, I would be happy if this were studied um, in a uh, larger set of all comers in COPD. Uh, and that's another reason why we did um, actually evaluate and, uh, you know, give some um, uh, coefficients for models without CT imaging features, which may not be widely available or which are not currently widely available, and also without six-minute walk distance, um, which, uh, you know, in some communities is not available. Um, and, and so I, I really think the key limitation here is of uh, generalizability. Um, and we are hoping to do more work ourselves and would be excited if other people picked up uh, some work on this as well. Jason, 
definitely, and uh, we definitely need uh, results to be reproduced in order for them to be uh, valid. I do want to address the issue of um, data sets because you, you made the comment uh, when you're describing the methods about how uh, you're basically limited by the data that is in these two databases. And I was intrigued um, by the fact that the P, uh, the pulmonary artery to aorta ratio was a variable, um, but you didn't have any data on echo findings, and I was wondering if maybe the PAA ratio was uh, uh, an indication of possible core pulmonale, and would uh, future studies look at echocardiographic findings to uh, see if, if that was a variable influencing mortality? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the, there are researchers in, within COPD gene at University of Alabama, Birmingham, um, who have done a lot of work um, with the pulmonary artery to aorta ratio, and you know, kind of what what does it what does it mean? And that was the group to describe the independent um, mortality prediction of the PA to A ratio, um, and they've done a lot of work with that. Uh, so, unfortunately, in COPD gene, we don't have um, echocardia. Uh, echocardiograms on, on, on all the participants, but there are um, some uh, imaging research groups uh, within COPD gene who are looking at uh, the CT, uh, kind of non-gated CTs for right ventricular shape and, and you know, what may explain some of these imaging features, not just the pulmonary artery to artery ratio, but other vascular features from CT scan, like vascular pruning, the dropout of small vasculature, um, and also correlating these to uh, physiologic measurements like refusing capacity. So people are on it. You know, we, we, we all agree it's, it's an issue, and, and if there is some uh, pulmonary vascular driver of um, mortality or, or lung function decline in COPD, uh, I, I think that the pulmonary artery to aorta ratio is a marker of that and is not the final common pathway. So we're all excited to kind of learn more about that. Great. And then another comment I had was about uh, the, the final variables that you had and the app that you use that you put online. Um, what happens if you're missing data? Like uh, say you've got a patient in front of you and uh, you, you're playing with the data to see what the risk of uh, mortality is. and you don't have uh, one of the the, 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 um, the the variables. How does that influence the model, and what what should you do if you're missing that data point? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's a great it's a great question. Um, so we we, we did uh, provide two different models online. One without imaging features, which we thought might be missing in the largest number of people. But we also provide the median values of all the variables um, so that it, you would kind of be able to plug in a, a best guess for a population. Um, what's going to happen if you have missing values is, of course, the more missing values you have, the, the less applicable um, the model will be for your hypothetical patient because uh, you, you know, you're not really able to give the totality of what's going on with that patient. Um, and since these are largely uncorrelated variables in the model, just the way the model was developed, um, if you're missing something like six-minute walk distance, that may really impact your ability to have a good prediction of mortality. Gotcha. So um, maybe we could go into what these findings actually mean for the, the future research and clinical practice of COPD. Um, Brian, why don't you kick us off? Um, 
Yeah, so I, I, I think that it does have relevance for both research and clinical practice in COPD. I mean, I, I think for, um, for research, it, it's clear that this is going to be a, a starting point, kind of a building point, and, um, and hopefully with more longitudinal data, longer follow-up, more cause-specific mortality, and consideration of a larger variable set, you know, we'll be able to extend this work and kind of go down different avenues for uh, if we're looking at um, not just mortality, but other markers of progression, you know, uh, exacerbation, um, uh, FEV1 decline, emphysema change over time, there are many different longitudinal aspects of data we would like to evaluate um, other than just mortality. Um, and, and in terms of clinical practice, I think there's really two facets here. I think, you know, the first thing is how is this relevant now? And I think it's relevant now and in, in to say that, um, you know, uh, First, it reinforces the idea that six-minute walk distance, though difficult to obtain in some places, is extremely important in predicting mortality. And I think that the Bode authors tried to show that, that the exercise limitation is extremely important. And it came cream of the crop to the top of all of our variables, even when we considered a large set of uh, different features. So I think that is, is, is one mes message that there have been different uh, mortality prediction tools that have tried to, you know, leave it out. and. And, mm -hmm. and still do a good job of mortality prediction, but six-minute walk distance is very important. That has come up time and time again. Um, but I, I think the other thing here is to kind of, and we encountered this a lot when we talked to people um, within COPDG and Eclipse and, and just, you know, general practitioners and pulmonologists, is, is, is this reticence to move beyond a three- or four-point scoring system for clinical information. And I think that you know, uh, electronic health records are now ubiquitous and that we can need to kind of break that barrier and say that, you know, with an online tool or, uh, you know, something built into your EHR, you, you, if the information can be mined from a patient's record, it's okay to look beyond things that you can write onto a note card and calculate someone's expectation because COPD is more complex than three or four points. Um, and uh, I think we do need to kind of open people up to the idea that this is a complex issue and it's going to take complex solutions. Um, and we're kind of hoping we crack that egg a little bit too. So maybe I can jump in there and then I don't want to be accused of being a Luddite, but um, you raise important points of like moving beyond like, you know, a three or four point uh, scoring system for COPD, but for the clinician practicing uh, in clinic and they see, you know, five or six different types of patients and if they have a, you know, a prediction score for each patient and they're having to do it for each patient and there's six or seven variables, it starts accumulating and overwhelming them and they say, you know, I just want something simple that I can do for a patient at the bedside that gives me an answer. What would your response to them be? And I think you mentioned the importance of making it available on the electronic record. I mean, would that be the solution to overcoming the wealth of information that they would have to wade through? Yeah, I mean, I think that real-time prediction for an individual patient um, mined from data already available in electronic health record is the direction things should be moving. Currently, these modules are, are available for some electronic health records, but they're extremely expensive. But, um, you know, I think if there is enough pressure from clinicians to say, hey, this is important, this is important to our patients, um, and that it, it is 
too much to ask, even, you know, we, we built this online app, or um, I should say that the first author, um, Matthew Mole, did that. I'll give him the credit there. That uh, that is still a barrier, you know, and, and although the, our online app is not meant to be used clinically right now, it's kind of an idea that if you had to go somewhere else and put, you know, 17 numbers into a calculator, yeah, that is, that is hard, if not impossible, for a busy clinician. But there's no reason that those information couldn't be automatically mined from an available record and given um, as a, a number to a clinician and a patient without you know, needing to jot things down and calculate scores and do that mm. four or five times a day. It, it could be automatically generated easily. Grace, what do you think of that? Uh, how do we implement uh, these great results and what comments do you have in terms of what this research means for future practice? Well, I think uh, Dr. Hobbs hit the nail on the head so many times. I'm going to reiterate a couple of um, things that, that resonated really strongly with me. Um, I have to say it's very frustrating for me to be um, running a clinic here with imaging, six-minute walk test, uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, um, CT, MRI, um, oscillometry, lung clearance index. I know we have a body box. And none of these data are collected regularly in COPD patients, even those that are um, you know, seeing academic um, respirologists. Um, they're being seen, but a lot of these data are not being collected. That's my first frustration. I echoed his um, focus on the six-minute walk test. I can tell you that it is the best predictor uh, of what we see uh, on the imaging side on the functional imaging side and the CT side. And it doesn't matter if you have 10 patients or 1,000 patients or 10,000 patients, six-minute walk distance comes out every time. Um, from my end, I think we do need to push the boundaries. And I think that the patients themselves are, are quite um, resigned to the fact that they smoked and they have a disease and this is the way it's going to be and I think that's had a pervasive influence on the way COPD patients are treated and the kinds of tests that are collected in them regularly. I completely agree that if you have an electronic health record and we've invested in that across the developed world, um, it's extremely simple, it's basic math to just put in a few variables and come up with a score. Um, from my end on the research side, what I'm really looking for is how do you explain the six-minute walk test, how do you explain his model using the pathologies in, in the lung and in the chest? Are the pathologies, is it the pulmonary vasculature that needs some attention? Is it, is it the pulmonary artery that needs attention? Is it the heart that needs more attention? Um, or is it the airways and, and um, emphysema? We don't know. Um, so my job is to kind of take his model and his results and try to go backwards and reverse engineer how we got there. What's getting that? What is the, the main driver from, a, you know, from the, the lungs and the heart that explain why someone with an FEV1 of X can walk, do a you know, perfectly good um, six-minute walk test, and someone with the same FEV1 can't. So um, I think his um, findings really um, point to the fact that we do need to collect these data. They are important, and I know the boat's been out there, and it's very simple, um, but hopefully with this new way of um, 
of sort of uh, without bias of collecting the data that that explain um, uh, death or longitudinal uh, risk of death, that's going to open people's eyes to the fact that those data need to be collected in the first case. I think that's a really uh, great uh, statement. So um, we're drawing towards the end of the podcast now, and uh, I've been really appreciative of uh, your time. Um, I want to give you each um, uh, an opportunity to have some closing remarks, um, and maybe if we didn't cover something that you thought was very important for our uh, listeners to hear, uh, please go ahead and say it now. Um, I'll start with um, uh, Dr. Parago, and then I'll end with Dr. Hobbs. I think what was exciting for me is that the existing databases that have been that have that many many people have have put in an enormous effort to, for Eclipse and COPD gene that included some very state of the art measurements when these data were acquired. It's the first time that this has really been run through a new, a novel um, machine learning protocol, um, and the the results really emphasize the importance of some of the variables that we knew about in the past, but they've also um, identified new variables that we need to think about that help predict um, death in COPD patients. And that's what I'm excited about. Great. Thank you, Dr. Paragon. Uh, Dr. Hobbs? Um, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the uh, possible influence of genetics and genomics in individualized prediction. I, I am at heart a COPD genetics and genomics researcher. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, beyond these clinical data, you know, there's also, I envision, a time um, in the future when we're using uh, polygenic risk scores and uh, people's uh, transcriptomic profiles and uh, and you know, panels of, pro, of proteomics and biomarkers, all in concert with um, these data we currently have available. And I think that machine learning and uh, kind of integrative tools will be much uh, more important as we get more and more data, which I think is all worth considering as we progress here. Um, and I, I do think this is just the beginning of a, of a kind of a new research uh, phase for COPD um, because just the, for the first step is, you know, as we improve mortality prediction is finding those sets of variables and what is important to even collect. Um, but then the whole new set of questions, um, like Dr. Paraga mentioned, is finding kind of the biologic drivers of those features. Mm -hmm. And even beyond that, which of those are modifiable, mm -hmm. are actually modifiable to change um, the course of someone's disease. Because just because things are good predictors doesn't actually mean that they're modifiable. Uh, right. So I, I think that um, I'm just excited about what's, what's to come next, but I, 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 I do um, really did enjoy working on this project with, uh, with uh, the first author, I should mention him, Matthew Moll, and then my co-senior author, um, Dr. Michael Cho. So uh, we had a great group of, of people to work with on it. Great, and I, I, I did say that that will be the end, but I do have one more question for both of you. So you mentioned the importance of uh, modifiable uh, uh, markers. Um, if you had to guess or you know surmise as to which of the ones that you have right now could be modifiable, uh, which ones would they be, uh, uh, Dr. Parago? 
Wow, you really you really know how to get somebody, don't you? Um, this is something that we think about and we talk about all the time in the lab um, because we think we're looking at them on CT scans and we think we're looking at them on um, MRI in COPD patients and, and other vascular uh, pulmonary diseases. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the pulmonary vasculature is going to be something that we should be looking at and might be modifiable. Great. And uh, Dr. Hans? I'm going to have to uh, agree. I, I think, you know, of all the variables we considered in, in terms of imaging variables, the, um, the pulmonary artery to aorta ratio was one of the more important ones. Um, and I think among the things that are modifiable, that may be one where we can. And we know that it definitely impacts uh, someone's uh, exercise capacity. So. Um, I think that is an important one, um, but also I think uh, you know it would be interesting to see if managing someone's uh, metabolic issues in relation to the importance of diabetes and, and uh, BMI in our model, if, if those might also uh, be important. Great, and that's a really uh, informative discussion, and I thank you both for allowing me to put you on the spot. Uh, I learned a great deal, and I'm sure our audience has as well. A very big thank you to Drs. Hobbs and Paragraph for a great conversation, and a very big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a CHESS podcast. <laughs>